This morning we are continuing in the book of Romans chapter 11. And today we'll be looking at verses 11 through 15. God's purpose and Israel's rejection. Many years ago when I first went into the army, uh, I had to, to declare where I'd like to go for an overseas assignment. Well, I had uh, spent several years growing up in Panama because my dad had been in the army there. So I put down, I'd, I'd like to go to Panama if I was going to go overseas somewhere. Um, I have to understand it was during the Vietnam War and Vietnam, Panama, I'll go to Panama. Uh, and uh, as it happened, uh, my, my first duty station was in, in Fort Benning, Georgia, and I worked with a guy who was the exact same rank as I was, had the same amount of experience and so forth, who had put in to go to Germany because he had married a German national. So I wanted to go to Panama because I had grown up there. He wanted to go to Germany because his wife was from there. We got orders the same day. They sent me to Germany and him to Panama. <laughs> we, we fought this all the way up the chain of command to the Department of Defense. And finally, our request was rejected. Nope. It is written. Thou shalt go to Germany. So I went to Germany, not very happy about it. But God had a bigger purpose in it because the guy I met when I got there to my duty station was a believer. And he was looking for someone to evangelize. And here I was, a rank pagan, and God had prepared my heart to hear the message of the gospel. And Jack King told me about Christ dying for my sin and I often wonder if I had instead gone to Panama what would have happened but God rejected my request even as reasonable as it was to send me to Germany to hear the gospel from Jack King at that point in my life when I was open to it God often uses rejection in our lives to to bring about the bigger purpose that he is unfolding and anytime we're rejected whether it's a request for assignment or a promotion or uh, someone that we feel we have a loving relationship with rejects us or all kinds of rejection comes our way but we need to look for what is God doing in this what is he bringing about And that's what we see here in this book of Romans, chapter 11, concerning the nation of Israel. Last week, we looked at how God had rejected Israel. Because Israel rejected their Messiah, God rejected Israel. But we find out that that's not the end. This section we're about to look at shows us God's purpose in the rejection of Israel. And perhaps we'll see something about uh, 
his working in our lives as well. <clears throat> the first thing to notice in God's purpose in Israel's rejection is that that rejection was neither full or final. First of all, Israel is not fully rejected. Romans 11, 11. <clears throat> I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So again, Paul starts the section with a, with a question and answer. He's bringing up a question on behalf of some would-be objector that someone might say, well, because, in light of what you said, it seems like, man, they're done. God's not going to have anything to do with them. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? And his answer is certainly not, or may it never be, literally. So they are not, Israel is not fully rejected. If we go back in chapter 11 to the beginning of the uh, chapter, Paul shows how they are not fully rejected. I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left. And they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And what Paul is saying here is that it might seem like God has cast away his people, but God always has a remnant. God always has a number of people from Israel whom he has called to himself people who will believe in him, follow him. Paul was a prime example. Even in Elijah's day when he thought he was the only one, there were 7,000. And even at this present time, there is a remnant according to grace. Verse 7, What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. So there is a remnant according to grace. Israel is not fully rejected. It may be true that a great percentage of, of the Jews were not believers. But you could not say that of all the Jews. There was a portion, there was a, a remnant that God always kept who were faithful to him. But the, the next question is one that which, is a, which addresses uh, the rest of the section. And that is, Israel is not finally rejected. Meaning that in the end, Israel will not be rejected at all. Israel is not finally rejected. The rejection we read about here is not the final word of God on the matter. Verse 11 again says, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Now, we need to think about uh, the wording here specifically. Have they stumbled well, they did stumble and may help to go back to where Paul first mentioned that about them in chapter 9, verse 31 and 32. So if you go back to Romans 9, 31. 
But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. The stumbling stone for them was believing in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. They did not believe. They insisted instead by trying to, by their own righteous deeds, earn God's favor. So, verse 11 of chapter 11 says, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Well, they have certainly stumbled. Just as you might be walking down a path and stumble over a a rock or a branch or something in the way. Sure, they stumbled. But the question is, what final effect does the stumbling have? Did they stumble so that they should never get back up? Or was the stumbling a temporary fall so we have to think about this word fall then I say then have they stumbled that they should fall he says certainly not but through their fall to provoke them to jealousy salvation has come to the Gentiles now uh, the word fall in the uh, King James and the New King James occurs twice in that verse other translations say something like have they stumbled that they should fall certainly not but through their trespass or through their transgression the second fall is translated differently and for good reason let me explain this to you although both words could be translated fall the first fall that word is a very different word from the second and the, the first word for fall is the idea of like off a cliff that kind of a, a fall it is it's a fall that breaks. It is a fall that destroys. In fact, this word fall is translated several other times in the New Testament as destroyed. It is it's such a fall that it will destroy you, like falling off a high cliff. So that's the first word. Have they stumbled that they should fall with the idea of being destroyed? Certainly not. That's not the case. They haven't stumbled to the point of being completely destroyed. But what has happened? But through their fall, which could be translated trespass or transgression, this second word for fall is, is a word that means to fall along the side. Now, if you're walking along a, a path and you fall along the side... That's a great deal different than walking along a path and falling off a cliff, right? I mean, I'd much rather fall along the side myself. And so that's the difference in those two words. This idea of falling along the path, that's where we get the idea of trespass. It's it's taking a wrong step. Uh, Not to minimize the significance here, because what it's pointing to is nothing less than sin a transgression or a trespass against God but it is not the same as being destroyed so there's a keep that distinction in mind here this is in fact Paul's point that they have stumbled but not that they should fall in defeat 
but rather they have fallen in the sense of transgressing or trespassing and it has its own purpose and that is second point here that Israel's rejection leads to Gentile salvation there's something positive that God has in mind as a purpose of Israel's rejection he's going to bring something positive out of it namely that we get saved that Gentiles get the message of salvation so first of all salvation has come to the Gentiles we see that in verse 11 as well I say then have they stumbled that they should fall certainly not but through their trespass to provoke them to jealousy salvation has come to the Gentiles salvation has come to the Gentiles this is good news it's not just about what God is doing with the, the Jews or Israel anymore. It's, it's expanded now to the whole world. Salvation has come to the Jews. It's like this. If, if I offered person A a gift, and they said, no, nah, I don't think I want that. I'm waiting for something else. I say, okay, I'm going to give this gift to person B. Person B says, all right, I'll take it. Then they open the gift, and person A is over here looking, what is that, you know? And then they say, hey, if I had known that, I would have taken it. And that's what's going on here. Israel rejected the gift. So God is saying, I'm giving it to the Gentiles. Why? Not just to bless them, it will. But when they open that gift, and it becomes evident what they have, then the Jews will see that and be jealous and will say, I want to have that. So that's, that's what's going on here. First of all, salvation has come to the Gentiles. We get blessed with the gospel message. But then salvation of the Gentiles should make the Jews jealous. Now, we see that in, in verse 11. Uh, but through their trespass to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So the purpose in verse 11 actually is to bring about jealousy on behalf of, of Israel towards the Gentiles and what they have in their relationship with God. Now, um, go back to chapter 10, verse 19. But I say then, did, did Israel not know? First Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. Again, we just see how this was uh, prophesied a number of times in the Old Testament that, that God was going to do this. He was going to use someone else to provoke Israel to, to jealousy. Um, now, in this passage before us in chapter 11, Paul further expands on this idea of jealousy in verses 13 and 14. So let's turn there. Romans 11:13. <clears throat> For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. So Paul says, for I, I speak to you Gentiles, meaning that 
Paul is talking to the church at Rome um, uh, and the church at Rome was mostly Gentile he didn't say I speak to you who are Gentiles among the church but I speak to you Gentiles so the church was probably made of mostly of Gentiles which had some Jewish converts and he is reminding them he is an apostle to the Gentiles which seems ironic as you read Paul's letters how he his heart's desire for Israel that they might be saved and how every time he went into a, a new town he'd go where first? To the synagogue, right? And he'd preach there till they'd throw him out and then he'd go to the Gentiles. But he, and he says the, the gospel is first of all to the Jews and then also to the Gentiles. But <clears throat> God gave him a hard task in that he was to be the apostle to the Gentiles. But he's starting to see how that ministry to the Gentiles really in the long run affects Israel too in a positive way so he is an apostle to the Gentiles and he says I magnify my ministry into <clears throat> um, verse 13 I, I magnify my ministry uh, notice that he doesn't say I magnify myself <clears throat> That's, it's never proper to elevate or magnify Self, but he's saying I magnify my, my ministry and he, the word for ministry is diaconos from where we get deacon uh, it's a lowly service I, I magnify my, my service why is his ministry magnified by his going to the Gentiles it is because it goes way beyond just the salvation of the Gentiles there's something else happening that he's going to explain to us there's there's something else happening beyond the mere salvation of thousands and millions of gentiles as great as that is for one thing he's saying verse 14 if by any means i may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them that perhaps in his ministry to the gentiles some Jews will see that and he will be able to see some of them saved and that would be a tremendous thing for him but there's even more to the story and this is really where Paul is heading thirdly that Gentile salvation leads to Israel's full salvation so Israel goes from failure to fullness verse 12 now if their fall or trespass is talking about Israel again now if their trespass is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles how much more their fullness now the, the first two phrases there are parallel they're talking about the same thing it's two ways of saying the same thing for emphasis if their trespass is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles and Paul is here going to argue from the lesser to the greater it's a form of argument if this lesser thing is true how much greater is this other thing going to be if, if their failure has led to the riches for the Gentiles salvation for them then what would their fullness be 
to get an idea of this kind of argumentation by Paul, look at Romans 5, verse 10. Romans 5, 10. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Just think about that. When, at a time when we were enemies of the cross, enemies of Christ, when we were enemies, if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Now, that, that we are not enemies anymore, but we belong to him, how much more are we going to be saved by his life? So it's the how much more argument. If this lesser thing is true, how much greater this greater thing is true? Same thing in Romans eleven twelve. If this is true, if through something that is negative, their sin, if because of their sin, the Gentiles are blessed with the gospel then what kind of blessing can we expect when they are fully saved what would God have in store then how much more he says in verse 12 how much more their fullness so um, what is meant by the fullness how much more their fullness uh this is a word which refers to their quantitative fullness. It can refer to qualitative fullness, that is, person being fully satisfied about something, but often it refers to quantitative fullness, the full number of something, the, the numerical completeness. Um, and that's how I believe it should be understood here as a quantitative fullness, a numerical completeness. And the, the context in which we find this word fullness kind of gives that away, before and after context. The, the context before this, remember the passage just before this was talking about the remnant of Israel, that there was a small number, but always a guaranteed number of Jews who would be faithful to God. There was always a remnant. And so now in comparison or contrast with the remnant is the fullness. And as the, the remnant has the, the idea of quantity, so the fullness has the idea of the full quantity. But what really seals this is verse 25 where we find the exact same word used there and it definitely has the idea of numerical completeness or quantitative fullness verse 25 for I do not desire brethren that you should be ignorant of this mystery lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in so Israel is blind, at least in part, until a time when the fullness, same word, pleroma, the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That is when all the Gentiles who are going to be saved are saved. 
all the sheep are in the fold and God will at that point um, rapture us up to heaven to begin the seven years of tribulation which is followed by the millennial kingdom and in that seven years of tribulation the church is gone and God will again turn uniquely to the nation of Israel whom he will call his people again his people the church the bride of Christ will be raptured up that starts the seven years of tribulation and he deals with Israel uniquely he calls 12,000 evangelists out of the 12 tribes that's 144,000 and mass um, evangelism happens throughout the whole world leading to the end point at the, um, at the end of the tribulation period where every Jew who's still living will have their eyes open and understand that Jesus Christ was indeed the Messiah and they will look on him whom they have pierced and fall down and worship him as the king and that's the millennial kingdom at the end of the seven years of tribulation so we'll talk more about that in a couple weeks when we get down to verse 25 but I just want to show you how that same word is used in both places verse 12 at the end how much more their fullness and since verse 25 uh, all scholars agree it talks about the fullness of the Gentiles being the full number of Gentiles being saved that it must have the same meaning in verse 12 so the idea is this if by their failure their trespass the Gentiles became saved what more can we expect how much more can we expect God's going to bless when they are turned around and no longer rejected but accepted in their fullness um, so finally we see that Israel's full salvation leads to kingdom blessings verse 15 <clears throat> for if they're being cast away or uh, rejected would be a good word for that if they're being rejected is the reconciling of the world what will their acceptance be but life from the dead and notice first of all that this is a lot like verse 12 isn't it those, those two verses are um, very similar to each other verse 12 if their fall is riches to the world and failure riches to the Gentiles how much more their fullness verse 15 if they're being rejected is the reconciling of the world what will their acceptance be but life from the dead so we also see um, confirmation that the idea of fullness there in verse 12 has to do with their acceptance verse 15 so um Again, Paul is arguing from the lesser to the greater. If this is true, how much more is this going to be true? Um, and it is God who, who takes initiative in both these parts. He's the one who has rejected them, but he's also the one who will accept them. So, they're being rejected. Had the purpose of bringing something positive about the, the negative rejection led to the positive acceptance of Gentiles we were given the gospel 
If that was true, then how much more will their acceptance be? And he gives us a hint at that, but life from the dead. Now, it just remains for us to try to understand what life from the dead means. What, what, what do you mean by that, Paul? Well, the, the most obvious explanation is that what Paul is pointing to here is the resurrection. Uh, life from the dead. Although that particular phrase is found nowhere else in the New Testament, if you take uh, life off of it and just go from the dead, that is found a number of times, and every time it's referring to resurrection. So it's probably Paul's meaning here. That's the most obvious. But even with that, something more is intended. Something greater than just the resurrection just having new life because see in the verse, first part of the verse if they're being cast away is the reconciling of the world if we've been reconciled to God then we have already been uh, we are already have spiritual resurrection guaranteed to us so must be something more that's part of the reconciliation already so it most likely refers to the new life that comes with the resurrection rather than just the resurrection itself. It's, it's, the, it's not just the fact that we'll be raised again, but what we'll be raised to, the new life. And that new life that's in view here is something, something that is exceptional in its greatness beyond what you could conceive. Furthermore, when we compare verse 12 and 25 and 26 with this statement, it suggests that life from the dead must be an event which is distinct from Israel's restoration, but connected to it. That is, it flows from Israel's resurrection. And it's something which involves the whole world, and it's something that occurs at the end of history. So it requires those four things. That it's an event distinct from Israel's restoration, but it is connected to it. That is, it flows from it. It involves the whole world, and it comes at the end of, of world history. So the resurrection in view here, life from the dead, is not individual resurrection, but a new birth and a new life which is worldwide in scope. It, it affects the whole cosmos. It affects everything and everyone. It is nothing less than the ushering in of a new age called the millennial kingdom. We saw a little hint of that back in chapter 8, if you want to go back there to Romans 8 and starting at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. 
For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. And what will happen in that day in the millennial kingdom when Christ establishes his, his reign on this earth, the, the lion will lay down with the lamb and the, the barren places will bring forth fruit and uh, Israel will be the center of the world uh, um, politically and religiously and Christ himself will reign. Uh, it will be like paradise regained like what Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden. Like that, but better. Because instead of being under the dominion of Adam, it will be under the dominion of the second Adam, Christ. And uh, that, is, that is what is going on in Romans 11. So Paul is arguing this way. Uh, Israel has been rejected in part but not fully their rejection has been used by God to bring the gospel to the Gentiles and when the Gentiles are fully evangelized that will eventually Israel being fully evangelized saved and when Israel is saved that will bring in the millennial kingdom now they'll have to go through some pretty hard times to get there but it ends with the kingdom. And so we understand a little bit more about why Paul is excited about this ministry. Why he says, I, I magnify my ministry, therefore. Because he sees that the more Gentiles who get saved, the closer it is to their fullness coming in and the end time coming. And the same thing is true for us. As more and more people come to Christ, we don't know what that full number will be. When, when God will return and rapture his, his completed church. Um, but that day is getting closer and closer. Now, uh, in addition to these, uh, the theological importance of this passage, as it has to do with the present time and the end times, there are also some applications, I believe, that we can make of how God works, how we see him working in this passage. First of all, we note that God works in unexpected ways. The way Paul is presenting the argument is, you would expect that God would have nothing to do with Israel anymore, and he would have a right to not want to deal with them anymore. Just completely put them aside and say, I'm done with you forever. That's what you would expect. That's probably what we would do if we were God, if someone harmed us, sinned against us the way we have sinned against God. But God works in unexpected ways. And, and his plan of using the salvation of one to bring the salvation of another is, is unexpected. In our lives, God works in unexpected ways, even using things like rejection, like he did with Israel to bring about positive circumstances. Change not only in our life, but in the lives of others. In, in things that we can't see, God is working behind the scenes in unexpected ways. 
And so we need to continue to trust him. Secondly, God works in greater ways than we see or know. God not only has in mind the salvation of a few, a remnant of Israel, or a few of the Gentiles, but he has worldwide dominion in mind. He is going to establish a millennial kingdom here. He is going to bring a myriad and myriad of 10,000 times 10,000s of Gentiles to know him. And then he is going to turn his attention to Israel and do a marvelous work in them to at the point of the end of the tribulation time, all Israel will be saved. And then bring in his millennial kingdom on earth. He works in much greater ways than we see or know. And he is active right now. Well, he is working in our own individual lives in greater ways than we see or know. Sometimes you may think that you are caught up in the mundane of just going from day to day. But ask yourself, what is God doing? Or ask God to, God, what are you doing in my life? What do you want me to see that you're doing? And even the things we don't see we don't get we trust him that God is doing greater things than we see or know third God works in ways consistent with his word and his character all these things that Paul is talking about are consistent with prophecies of the Old Testament now if we could take the time to go back through chapters 9 and 10 uh, especially we we'd note again all the references to Old Testament prophecy that Paul brought out. This verse and that verse and from Deuteronomy and Isaiah and Psalms and all over the place that God was being consistent with what he had said. He is consistent with his word. He always is. And he is also consistent with his character. That he is a, he is a God who is a just God and so he, he, is not, he is not just letting sin go. Sin must be atoned for. But he is a God of mercy and love too. And when we get to the end. And Jews and Gentiles alike are praising God for eternity. We will see that God has been faithful to his word and his character. And he is working that way in your life too. He is faithful to his word. Now, there's a, there's a hint of warning in this, too. Because if he's faithful to his word, he's, he tells us, you know, you're going to reap what you sow. So be careful what you, what you sow. He, he tells us that there is consequences for our sin. So be careful how you live. He also talks about the blessing of those who, who seek him, who follow him, who devote their lives to him. So he is, he's consistent to do that what he said he is working in your life in a way consistent with his word and with his character and fourth God works in ways to bring the fullest blessing to us and the greatest glory to him now certainly at the moment that Paul was writing these words about God's plan for Israel they weren't feeling very favored by God were they they were feeling like the rejected ones, the ones who were set aside, and indeed they were. But that wasn't the end of the story. God has great blessing in mind for Israel. 
and you may feel at the moment that you know I, I just don't see God doing great things in my life right now but he's working again behind the scenes and in your life and in his time to bring about the greatest blessing I have found that when I have gone through hard times trials that's when I've grown the most learned the most now I don't know about you but I'm not signing up for any more trials you know it's not like hey can I have a couple more of those so, had enough had, thank you but, but I recognize that's how God works he often works through the hard times right and it's when we trust him through the hard times and we just hang on to him knowing that he knows what he's doing and he is going to bring us through and he is going to provide greater blessing than we would have had if we had not gone through the trial now if we had time I could list for you a thousand trials I've been through and guess what I haven't died yet I've made it through all of them I'm not bankrupt yet I, I've made it through all of them and there were some of those trials back there I just I told God I can't make it another day guess what I did and here I am today telling you that God is always faithful and his idea is to bring blessing to us trust him for that God works in ways to bring the fullest blessing to us and the most glory to him. Because when we go through those trials, we see that God brought us through. Who gets the glory? He does, right? In the end, Israel, as well as us Gentile believers, are all going to praise the same Lamb of God who is crucified for us he will get all the glory because no one will come to the father except through the son and God is working in your life in ways to bring not only blessing to you but glory to himself let's pray Lord we are so grateful for your gracious working the way that you work God that you, you desire to bless us and at the same time bring glory to yourself we pray that we would not fight that working but that, that we would yield to that molding of our life and character that you desire I pray for each one here, God, that they would understand your love for them. A love that is so great that, that, Father, you would nail your son to a cross for us. Lord, that we would leave this place glorifying you, being secure in you, praising your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. God bless you.